Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Canadian truckers who have become heroes of the anti-vaxxing movement, the Republican right and right-wing media in the US as they surround the Canadian Capitol buildings with their so-called freedom convoy of 18-wheelers, some with their wheels off up on blocks. Joining us is Andrew Cohen, an author, journalist and professor in the School of Journalism at Carleton University in Ottawa. In a career of 40 years, he has worked in Ottawa, Toronto, Washington, London and Berlin and has written for The Globe and Mail, The New York Times, Foreign Affairs, United Press International, Time and CNN, among other publications. His books include While Canada Slept, How We Lost Our Place in the World and Two Days in June, John F. Kennedy and the 48 Hours That Made History and we will discuss his article at CNN, Canada's Trucker Protesters Aren't Who Americans Might Think and how 90% of the truckers are vaccinated in a country where the national consensus prefers the loss of liberty over the loss of life. Then, with Putin and French President Macron meeting today in Moscow, followed by a seven-course dinner, then a press conference that stretched well after midnight, we will go to Paris to speak with David Andelman, a contributor to CNN, twice winner of the Deadline Club Award, and a chevalier of the French Legion of Honour. He is the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles 1919 and The Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy Strategy and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen. Formerly a correspondent for the New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia, he runs the Substack blog Andelman Unleashed, and we will discuss his latest article at CNN, Is Macron the West's New Putin Whisperer? Then finally, we'll look into the meeting today in the White House between President Biden and the new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, in which both sides tried to show a united front that the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia would be cancelled in the event of a Russian attack on Ukraine. Joining us to discuss the rift between two countries over German reluctance to arm Ukraine is Thomas Berger. Professor of International Relations at Boston University, who specializes in German politics and international relations. He is the author of War, Guilt and World Politics After World War II and Cultures of Anti-Militarism, National Security in Germany and Japan. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Andrew Cohen, an author, journalist and professor in the School of Journalism at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. In a 40-year career, he has worked in Ottawa, Toronto, Washington, London, Berlin and has written for The Globe and Mail, The New York Times, Foreign Affairs, United Press International, Time and CNN, among other publications. And his books include While Canada Slept, How We Lost Our Place in the World and Two Days in June, John F. Kennedy and the 48 Hours That Made History. And he has an article at CNN, Canada's trucker protesters aren't who Americans might think. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the truckers have shut down Canada's capital, Ottawa, and the mayor of Ottawa has declared a state of emergency. So when you say that Canada's truckers aren't who Americans might think, there's a lot of Americans on the right with Fox News personalities and others championing what's going on. So from the American perspective, it looks like a kind of Trump operation. How does it look like on the ground there in Ottawa? Well, uh, as much as we find it distasteful, and as much as it is inconvenient, and as much as some of this crowd are intimidating residents, there has yet to be in, in 11 days any real violence, any fisticuffs, any destruction. Um, it is, in a sense, uh, however, again, it may be uh, distasteful for us, uh, it has not yet become a mob in the sense that it is terrorizing people. This is not the assault on uh, the Capitol of January 6, uh, 2021. Uh, this is uh, shutting down what we call the parliamentary precinct. It's not the whole city. It's, it's a good part of downtown. Um, with uh, heavy trucks which are parked there and immobilized their wheels off and put up on blocks and um, and um, uh, people roaming um, blaring and blaring their horns setting off fireworks so it, it, it is it's evolved it's part carnival part encampment um, and part comic opera um, they've even brought in a bouncy castle across from parliament which is a note of levity in a, what I call the most uh, earnest city in Canada the capital of Ottawa so it's it isn't necessarily what Americans think. However, there are said to be elements who are funding this. The, the, this crowd raised over $10 million with GoFundMe until on Friday night, GoFundMe refused to release um, um, the money. They had released a million dollars, but they, understanding its purpose, which is to sow discord and doubt in the federal government, hey, they have stopped funding it, but they have raised that money. Some of it, Ian, is thought to come from the United States. There is no doubt there is an American tone to this in times of the kinds of flags they're carrying. Um, Canadians don't tend to wrap themselves in the Canadian flag, yet there are a lot of people doing it here. There are, uh, there are banners which using the F word uh, and offering that salutation to Justin Trudeau, which is a it looking the same as it would in the United States for Joe Biden. There are people saying, don't tread on me, which is clearly an Americanism. Canadians don't talk that way. And there's lots of talking about freedom and liberty in a way most Canadians don't talk about freedom and liberty. We talk about peace, order, and good government. So there are differences, much as the American right uh, is cheering this on. And there is something to cheer. It's not quite the same as they think it is. But in your article at CNN... Andrew, you say that the Canadian national consensus prefers a loss of liberty over a loss of life. And since at its heart, this protest is about is an anti-vaxxing protest, even though 90% of Canadian truckers are vaccinated, it's nevertheless taken on the character of an anti-vaxxing protest. And that's largely why it's being supported here in the United States. So the fact that it's an anti-vaxxing process would indicate that, I mean, that's what you're referring to, right? I mean, one of the ironies that I keep pointing out about the United States is that we have reached a point here in the United States where liberty 
is threatening life and the pursuit of happiness. Um, so what you, it, it began, it began as allegedly an anti-vaxxer demonstration, but it has drawn elements from the far right uh, who simply want to upend the government. And um, and we think there the the police think though it, it isn't proven and I imagine they're infiltrating uh, plainclothes cops are infiltrating the ranks of the leadership of, of of this who are associated with the far right some of them are Islamophobes and and there is a good deal of among some people some people uh, trafficking in racism but understand something about Canada. These folks, um, uh, this is not like a demonstration in the United States where there are large jurisdictions and a large number of Americans who opposed, uh, who opposed vaccinations. Canadians embrace vaccinations. Ian, we have among the highest level of vaccination in the Western world. I think there are two or three countries higher than we are. So while there are, of course, a number of Canadians, it might be 15%, who refuse to, uh, to be vaccinated and, and oppose the vaccination mandates, if this crowd thinks this is going to have their anti-vax doctrine is going to have any traction in, in, in Canada, they're largely wrong. The government won't even talk about what they're talking about because all, all provincial governments which administer health care, as well as the federal government, in different jurisdictions, by the way, under different political parties, all agree with mass mandates and vaccinations. Uh, and and uh, we have had more recently shutdowns and no one likes it. But there's a far greater level of acceptance here than in the United States. So if the far right thinks that this is going to have traction in, in Canada, they're disappointed. Uh, they will be disappointed because it won't. And again, I'm speaking with Andrew Cohn, who is an author, journalist and professor in the School of Journalism at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. In his 40-year career, he's worked in Ottawa, Toronto, Washington, London and Berlin and has written for the Globe and Mail, the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, the United Press International, Time and CNN, among other publications. And his books include While Canada Slept, How We Lost Our Place in the World and Two Days in June, John F. Kennedy and the 48 Hours That Made History. And he has an article at CNN, Canada's Trucker Protesters Aren't Who Americans Might Think. So when you talk about the protest in Ottawa being infiltrated by Canada's right I, or far right, I take it that in political terms that would be the People's Party. But the difference is that the People's Party is kind of a Trump party in Canada, but it split the right in Canada and actually made life easier for Trudeau on the left. No such thing is happening here in the United States. The Republican Party is completely owned by Trump. The Republican National Committee just, they've just purged two of their members who are actually investigating what happened on January the 6th. And they have praised the insurrectionists saying that they were engaged in a legitimate political discourse. So, <laughs> again, there may be echoes of Trump there in the protest, make Canada great again, and the occasional Confederate battle flag. But the politics in terms of the far right quite different. Canada's far right has split the, the right, whereas Trump has taken over the entire uh, right in America. Uh, that's absolutely true. And so the Conservative Party of Canada, which uh, is changing leaders, um, has um, certainly Republican echoes within it. Um, there are people in the Conservative Party of Canada, they are in the minority, the Liberals are in power here, uh, who are sympathetic to some of the demonstrators. And remember, 
many of the people who came to Parliament Hill, particularly a week ago last weekend, were simply people who uh, who felt they shouldn't have to be vaccinated and, and came out and were peaceful and, and didn't harass anybody. And within them are other elements. You might say that within the January 6th, protesters. There were other elements, people who never actually got into uh, got into the House of Representatives or the Senate. Um, so you've mentioned the far right. It is the People's Party of Canada. The People's Party of Canada got between six and seven percent of the vote in elections last October and no seats in the 330 seat Parliament of Canada. They are nowhere in Canada. Their leader, like a petitioner, went among the crowds uh, on Parliament Hill and sought a little bit of attention and might have gotten a little bit of attention. Um, they did siphon some votes from the Conservative Party. I don't think it was enough to make a difference. The Conservative Party did get about 33% of the vote and is not uh, has within it uh, many, many currents but it's largely, it, it's not an anti-vax uh, party. In the same way, it's not an anti-immigration party. In the same way, many of the questions that, particularly uh, hot-button uh, social issues that are contentious in the United States, like abortion and immigration, even in some cases capital punishment or, or same-sex marriage, were long ago settled in Canada. So our far right is, is, is or our conservatives are not challenging uh, immigration, they're pro-immigration, they're not challenging abortion. Um, for political reasons, they may see some some uh, benefit in aligning themselves with some anti-vaxxers, but there are many conservative premiers, including in the province of Ontario, which are much aligned with the federal government on vaccination policy. So what I would say to you, Ian, is yes, there is an element in our country, but it's not in the mainstream and it's nowhere near the mainstream. And that is why it's easy However noisy this crowd makes itself on Parliament Hill, it's easy to dismiss them. And and eventually they'll be disbanded and disarmed and maybe they'll pop up somewhere else and Americans will think that they have uh, fostered or germinated a, a revolution in Canada. It's not happening here from what anybody can see. It is a loud, noisy and disrespectful and lingering demonstration which has been allowed to take root by inept police. But as of yet, there has been no violence and there has been um, uh, nothing that would be seen as that. Um, no assault, for example, no insurrection. Um, so it, it, it is, as I say, a different scene here. Well, Andrew, if you're watching American right-wing TV, Fox <laughs> and Breitbart and OANN and Newsmax and Salem and others outlets you would think that this was a revolution just like the insurrection and it's being championed <laughs> by donald trump and tucker carlson on fox elon musk the tesla ceo is also championing it and the money is pouring in from the united states and now in the united states the far right or now i say it's the mainstream of the republican party because donald trump controls the far the uh, gop now they're doing minor trucker protests in various capitals around the, the states in the United States, but they're planning on, in March, converging on Washington with a copycat of what's happening now in Ottawa. Well, if the Washington, where I've lived many years, if Washington is smart, it will do what other Canadian cities have done and learn from Ottawa and, and ensure they can't come downtown and park rigs uh, uh, in, on Capitol Hill or near Capitol Hill. And uh, I think they'll be ready for them this time. 
uh, I, I saw Tucker, Carlson, Tucker Carlson's rant. He, among his many subtle statements, was calling Justin Trudeau the most fearful, I think, politician in the world. I, I quoted in that piece, but something like that. Tucker Carlson has, as we know, Ian, or we know in Canada, when he talks about Canada, a very tortured relationship with the truth when it comes to talking about Canada. I don't know if he's ever been here. He knows nothing about Canada. Um, and, and I think many Americans would say he knows nothing about uh, many realities in the United States. That having been said, uh, they're having a jamboree, the American right, uh, looking at, at Canada. And um, uh, enjoy it while it lasts, because uh, Canada remains a progressive country uh, with all its flaws that makes mistakes, but nonetheless does not have the civil unrest that is roiling the United States now, um, does not have the levels of crime that the United States has now, um, and, and does not have the racial tensions that, that uh, the United States has, and has a much more liberal immigration policy and universal health care and protecting a woman's right to abortion and, and things that have been settled in this country for, in some cases, decades. So if the American right is imagining Canada as some kind of beachhead for some kind of assault on liberal democracies around the world, well, you know, come and spend some time here and I can put them in touch with some of the truckers downtown and they can get in the cab and sail away with them, honking their horn into the wind. But they're very unlikely, they're very unlikely to get very far here because our history shows we're not interested in extremist movements. Uh, Canada is a radically moderate country. It's a centrist country. And it's in the hands now of a of a progressive coal, not coalition, but a, a a progressive alignment of two and three parties in our in our parliament. So uh, we we're amused actually, and I'm amused. I, I did see Tucker Carlson, and I'm amused by what you're you're telling me about um, his um, relishing all this. But he's making it up, or he's seeing what he wants to see, which wouldn't be anything new particularly. No, indeed. Just a quote from your article that Tucker Carlson sees Canada as a dark surveillance state led by, quote, a no more fearful despot in the world than Justin Trudeau. You know, <laughs> this is Ian, a guy uh, that, ha- that was recently hanging out with Orban in Hungary, for God's sake. Yeah, well, uh, um, yes. Um, and when Americans love to talk about freedom, I think it was the Cato Institute, which is not um, a, 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 a hub of progressive thought or, or liberal inclination. I think it was the Cato Institute, I could be corrected, that, that called Canada the sixth freest country in the world. In other words, when it was um, measuring uh, economic freedom and mobility, Canada is a very free country. If the folks who don't want to get vaccines, uh, by the way, the truckers who have been di- disowned by their own uh, uh, umbrella organization want to talk about freedom in, in, in Canada. And if, if they think there isn't freedom of Canada, well, they can go to the United States and see if they're freer than they are in Canada. Um, it's uh, According to the Cato Institute, they're not. Canada's a, a free place of mobility and, 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 and economic advancement, not a utopia, but uh, allowing its people to, to advance. And so um, what is very interesting, Ian, is this uh, 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 lingering and this expression of freedom. Um, I think increasingly Canadians, particularly Ottawans, and this is where I'm speaking to you from, would love freedom from this noisy caravan of anarchy and in some cases uh, hatred, uh, although not yet violence. Well, we have here in the United States, in the form of the Republican Party, which again is wholly owned by Trump, 
the paradox that the Republicans don't believe you have a right to vote, but you have a right to infect. And that is, I'm afraid, I don't know whether it's anti-intellectualism, what it is, why it's happening. The anti-vax movement now is being mainstreamed by these Republican leaders like Trump and uh, his mini-me down there in Florida, Governor DeSantis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump is in exile now, and um, uh, as we know, looking to uh, return from Elba, uh, which he may or may not, and return to power. And, um, uh, you know, this is if he thinks fomenting... um, uh, dissent in Canada. I mean, may, I, one thing that'll be very interesting, we don't know this yet, is is what the level of American money is, if it really is indeed American money. I sense there is, because raising $10 million in Canada uh, is not easily done this quickly. And, is, and I just don't think that, I, I don't know where the money is coming from, but I suspect there are large donations in American dollars, which are 30% more in Canadian dollars. Uh, that oh, may be no, where it's definitely... coming from. There's been some reporting on it. No, it's definitely ah, okay. money's pouring in, and it's okay. being championed by people like Huckabee and Glenn Beck and, and these right-wing uh, talk show hosts. So there's no doubt about it. Well, so um, let's yeah. encourage them to waste money from what you're telling me. It's a non-event. So. <laughs> uh, it, it, I mean, it, 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 is, it is disturbing. It's, it's a nuisance. It is a threat to, I will say, it, if it continues, it is, and, and they reiterate their demands that the government should resign and, and should be dismissed. Well, that is an attempted coup, and that's a threat if you're using your, your trucks to do that and you're occupying the parliamentary precinct, which is a few blocks downtown, not the whole city by any means. If you continue to do that, uh, it's uncomfortable. Uh, it's real, and you will feel at some point the weight of the state upon you, whether it's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or whether it's the military. And we have sent military into the streets in this country. Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, in 1970, uh, invoked uh, a now a defunct piece of legislation called the War Measures Act, when in Quebec, uh, violent revolutionaries kidnapped uh, a British diplomat and a Quebec uh, politician and murdered one of them, and he sent troops into the streets in October of 1970. It's called the October Crisis. So Canadians, and Canadians supported it. They were not afraid of that. Um, since then, we've rewritten the legislation in Canada now as a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But um, this is not a country afraid to to deal with these kinds of threats if it sees them as that. But in the meantime, it would prefer to just defuse it. So I think the preference here would be that these folks, having been asked to leave, will leave on their own volition. If they don't, the arrests are starting. Um, they've been their fuel has been cut off as it should be, and uh, they will be str- solely strangled. And at some point, uh, those trucks will be moved out. We hope there will be no loss of life in in that, and that will make us different from this country. But if there is, it'll be a sad consequence, perhaps, of the Americanization of some of Canadian politics. Well, Andrew Cohen, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much, Shane. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Cohen, who's an author, journalist, and professor in the School of Journalism at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. 
In his 40-year career, he's worked in Ottawa, Toronto, Washington, London and Berlin and has written for The Globe and Mail, The New York Times, Foreign Affairs, United Press International Time and CNN, among other publications. And his books include While Canada Slept, How We Lost Our Place in the World and Two Days in June, John F. Kennedy and the 48 Hours That Made History. And he has an article at CNN, Canada's Trucker Protesters Aren't Who Americans Might Think. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Putin and French President Macron's meeting today in Moscow, followed by a seven-course dinner, then a press conference that stretched well after midnight. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Endelman, who is a contributor to CNN, twice winner of the Deadline Club Award, and a chevalier of the French Legion of Honor. He's the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles 1919 and the Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy, Strategy, and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen formerly a correspondent for the New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia. He runs the Substack blog Antelman Unleashed. And his latest article at CNN is, Is Macron the West's New Putin Whisperer? Welcome to Background Briefing, David Antelman. Thanks for having me. So I don't know about how much whispering went on in these long meetings in Moscow that went deep into the night. I'm very grateful that you sent me the menu of the seven-course dinner that took place before the press conference that ended, what, around midnight Moscow time. Oh, no, it began, actually began around midnight uh, Moscow time. Uh, so it's gone on for an hour, so it's it's still going um, as we speak, but it's just about winding up. Um, uh, look, they spoke, they spoke for nearly six hours, which is um, longer, I think, than most people thought. Uh, some people took that as a good sign. I think it, I would take it as more of a sign that... Um, Neither one wants to be the one to call this off and the troops start to roll. So um, we're not in a position yet to say this thing is, is done or even that this, or there's, a, there's a truce for that matter, because I don't think there is. I think both sides are still kind of dancing around each other. And, and it's, um, we're still in a very difficult situation. I'll tell you one other interesting thing. Um, if, you, if you read um, the chapter of my book on, um, uh, on, on the Second World War in, um, in the Red Line in the Sand, I'm reminded of uh, Neville Chamberlain going to see Hitler and uh, at Berchtesgaden uh, and, and then uh, eventually at Munich, coming back and declaring peace in our time. And that's one thing that um, uh, that, that uh, Macron, who is facing a um, a major re-election uh, election for his uh, second term, he hopes in office um, in April. That's one thing he does not want to see himself as being. He does not want to see himself as a latter day 21st century Neville Chamberlain declaring peace in our time. So he did not do that today. That said, however, um, he did not come away with a piece of paper either, uh, as Chamberlain seemed to think he did. I think this is still very much up in the air. And I think a lot of things, a lot of language is going to have to be parsed before they can come to some kind of an arrangement. I I don't think the, I could be wrong and I've been wrong before, but I just don't see the the tanks rolling tomorrow. I just, I can't see that. Uh, So that's where we stand. 
So is that to say then that this is both a high-wire act for Putin and a high-wire act for Macron? I mean, today at his press conference with the German Chancellor, Joe Biden said that he doesn't think Putin knows what he's doing. He hasn't made up his mind yet. So it could go either way. And Macron, before this uh, marathon dinner and press conference and meeting, said, I don't believe in spontaneous miracles. And he went on to say, the geopolitical objective of Russia today is clearly not Ukraine, but to clarify the rules of cohabitation with NATO and the EU. So is he really in there to push Minsk too? Is that what's happening? In other words, you're talking about Chamberlain selling out the Czechs. Are they going to sell out the Ukrainians? Well, I don't think they have any intention of, I don't think, I don't think um, that, um, that uh, Macron has any intention of selling out the Ukrainians. I mean, that would be, that would be a, a, a catastrophe in terms of the other 13 people who are, who are vying to run against him in, uh, in April for the presidency in France. No, that would be a disaster. But I, I would like to point out one thing that Biden said um, that not too many people may have noticed. Um, when um, this is from the pool report uh, from the White House um, after right after the um, uh, their press conference, Biden and Schultz, there was a shouted question from the pool as Biden as, to Biden as he left about whether he believed there was still an off ramp available to avoid Russian escalation in Ukraine. President Paz said yes and walked out of the East Room. And that was it. So. There is still hope, and I think there's a lot more hope among the Europeans than there perhaps is among the Americans. But um, certainly, certainly Macron went to the Kremlin with some real hope, and I think he came out with some hope. Uh, look, they would not have spent six hours or almost six hours there talking about this, and and gone to a seven a seven course dinner, as you quite rightly pointed out, including reindeer as, as one of the courses. But um, at any rate, um, right. By uh, the way, I I was struck by the menu you sent me. I'd be interested in trying the Russian Chardonnay that went along with some of the earlier courses. That's right. I, I can't imagine what that's like. Some of the Russian whites are not bad. The Russian reds are really undrinkable. I spent a lot of time there. But no, look, I, I don't think, I think that Putin is trying to get as much out of this as he possibly can. And Macron is trying to look as good as he possibly can. And I think somewhere in the middle, there may be some kind of a, a if, if, if indeed he is, and I think he can be, Europe's real Putin whisperer, replacing Angela Merkel, who's had that job for, you know, a dozen years at least. Uh, I think we may be on the road to a future that could be very promising. There must be someone in the West who can talk to Putin. Yeah, I'll tell you one interesting uh, anecdote that a, a German general once told me about, um, about uh, Merkel. He said she calls Putin about every week or so just to hear him, have him on the phone so that he can hear another voice other than the one's that he hears every day from the Kremlin whispering in his ear. That's the kind of that's the kind of relationship we have to have someone in the West have with with Vladimir Putin. And and um, you know he's had six, they've had sixteen conversations in the course of the last few years. So um, I think um, you know I think Macron is well on the way to, to serving that function if he can get through this one. If he can get through this issue, and he can get reelected, I think there is a very strong possibility that he could become Europe's uh, Putin whisperer. And again, I'm speaking with David Andelman, who's a contributor to CNN, a twice winner of the Deadline Club Award and a Chevalier of the French Legion of Honor. 
He's the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles 1919, and The Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy, Strategy, and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen. He's formerly a correspondent for The New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia, and he runs the Substack blog Andelman Unleashed, and his latest article at CNN is, Is Macron the West's New Putin Whisperer? And he joins us from Paris. And, of course, Angela Merkel spoke Russian and Putin spoke German and they communicated quite often and and the point's well taken that she called him to basically give him a different perspective on what was happening because one of the fears uh, that analysts of Russia have is that uh, Putin is surrounded by some of these hawks with ultra-nationalist delusions like his national security advisor Nikolai Petrushev. So I don't know whether Macron could, could replace her but when you say that Biden's parting words as he was leaving the, the meeting with Chancellor Scholz today uh, was that there's still a pathway open, he would hardly say no, though, to that question, surely. I mean, he said yes, but he would he's not about to say no. So what does it tell you, really? He's been known to just ignore questions. He doesn't want to answer. He thinks the answer will be not a very good one. So um, right. I think that's I think, look, no one at this point wants to say that's it. There's going to be war. And, and let the tanks roll. I, no one is wants to be in that position. Um, so I, I think that uh, everybody's kind of dancing around to try to find what that off-ramp is. Now, if anybody can find that, I think it's, it's look, um, it's interesting, but Putin really does consider uh, Russia as a European nation. He also considers it, by the way, one of the eight major nations in the world and was very upset when he was uh, chucked out of the G7 uh, after Crimea. So um, that, that, that's really rankled him uh, quite a lot over the years. And, and so what I'm suggesting is that there are some issues like that that we could solve. Like, for instance, what if we set up certain um, certain uh, hurdles that uh, if Putin can go over, he gets back in the G8. Oh, he would love that. He would really love that. Um, uh, so, you know, there, there are all sorts of issues that um, not necessarily are on the front burner right now. But they could help to ease the way, ease the path to some kind of a resolution. And that's why I say it takes someone to really uh, understand what the underter- under- undercurrents are. I was I, I was I was able to see this on online on, on uh, the video of the, uh, the press conference. Um, I can tell you both leaders were very serious. And um, but <laughs> Macron was looking at Putin a lot more than Putin was looking at Macron. Um, now, a little bit of that is, is certainly um you know, Putin's own uh, hubris, shall we say. But I'm also concerned that um, I, I hope he's not playing Macron. And uh, that's what I think we really need to, to time. Only time will tell on something like that. Well, France has played a role up until now, an important role. In 2015, France and Germany brokered the peace deal in Ukraine that led in Minsk, of course, it led to the Minsk II agreement, which is very one-sided. And and Ukraine doesn't want to take it on because they would, they signed it when they were incredibly weak and it would essentially give Putin veto power over, over the country and therefore win politically, being able to destabilize the country politically without having to use military force. But also the leaders of Russia, Ukraine, France and Germany met in Paris in 2019 and they formed the so-called Normandy Format Summit. And their presidential advisors now from those same countries uh, met in Paris on January the 26th, and apparently they're meeting, I think, in a few days. So is that a viable avenue, the Normandy format? Well, I think the Normandy format is very promising. But remember, the Normandy format that, that deals primarily with the Minsk agreement, which is which deals with um, 
uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, the Donbass region. Um, we're talking about uh, 100, 125 to 150,000 uh, troops that are surrounding all of Ukraine, some of which are as, as, as close as a, a, a two or three hour drive from um, Kiev via uh, Belarus, uh, that is the capital of Ukraine. So this is potentially a takeover of the entire country that's, um, that, that could happen. Now, I have to say that is a, a great, a huge chance that uh, the Russia is taking. Ukraine, most people don't realize this, Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe uh, after Russia. It's an enormous, uh, enormous expanse. And, and his troops could easily get bogged down there and get into a, uh, an Afghan situation where body bags continue to be returning to, um, to, to Moscow in, in the hundreds, even the thousands. And that's what led to the fall of the Soviet Union. That's what led to the fall of Gorbachev. That is not something that Putin would be able to withstand so easily. So this is something that, um, look, one of the things that he said that I thought was particularly striking Putin today, said a number of Macron, his, Macron's ideas or proposals, which it is probably too early to speak about, I see as rather feasible for creating a foundation for our further steps. Putin doesn't want to be backed into a corner either. He needs a way out. We have to find him a way out. And that's one of the things I emphasized in my CNN piece today, that um, we need Putin, uh, Macron needs, the West needs to find a way, a, a face-saving, if you will, a way for Putin to back out of this whole thing. I mean, look, he got himself into it. There's no doubt about that. But we shouldn't necessarily refrain from trying to get him out of it as well. So that may be what Biden was suggesting in that remark that he doesn't think Putin knows what he's doing, that Putin's out on a limb. I mean, Russian state TV, which is controlled by the government, it's all pro-Putin, of course, has been hammering away at this ultranationalism. And, you know, it's going to be hard for him to back down. He's going to have to have something, isn't he? Oh, yes, he is. And I can't tell you what that is. And maybe it's some, look, his number one goal is to keep Ukraine permanently out of NATO. Well, you know, the other NATO countries, first of all, it has to be unanimous agreement among the 30 or so NATO countries uh, to admit a new nation. And with that Article 5 that people keep talking about, it's very important. An attack on one is an attack on all. None of these countries really, or a lot of these countries really don't want to admit another country that is potentially in jeopardy of an attack from a place like Russia, because they'll all be sucked into a huge war then. So I, I don't see this happening, Ukraine getting actually admitted to NATO for a very long time. Well, Putin's not going to be around for more than, what, 20 years? <laughs> Being very optimistic, he's almost 70 now, or maybe he is 70. Um, he's not going to be around that long. Um, 10 years? Who knows? But at any rate, um, we need to find some kind of a language that will basically allow Ukraine to remain independent, even pro-Western, but not give the guarantee to Russia that it won't be admitted formally to uh, NATO. So what do you think Macron meant when he said the geopolitical objective of Russia today is clearly not Ukraine, but to clarify the rules of cohabitation with NATO and the EU? Unfortunately, NATO and the EU have kind of merged. It's a pity that they couldn't have been kept separate, that the EU could have expanded eastward and not necessarily NATO. But unfortunately, in the, in the eyes of the Russians, they're one and the same. So the real issue, surely, uh, David, is that these countries like Ukraine and Poland and the Czech Republic and the Baltic states, they want democracy and the rule of law. 
what Putin offers his gangster government, like his buddy in Belarus, uh, Lukashenko. On the other hand, Russia has legitimate security concerns. So that, that's what you're navigating between, isn't it? So what do you think Macron, what, what do you think he's putting forward? Well, you know, first of all, the, the European Union is not a monolith um, and they're not uniform countries. I mean, if you could, you could say that there was gangster government in a place like uh, Hungary with Orban or even in um, even in Poland, for that matter, where the Poles are in terrible uh, difficulties with the European Union over their, their handling of the judicial system. So none of these are really uniform. And there are a lot of different tendencies going on. What I think is going on right now is we're in the midst of redrawing a whole series of red lines that have grown up through the years, uh, over, particularly over the last um, 10 or 15, 20 years before, since the um, the the, uh, the Berlin Wall came down and, and, and um, the Warsaw Pact dissolved and, and the Soviet Union broke up. All of these lines have been redrawn and they're very fluid right now. So we're in a position of each side is trying to test where these lines should be, where they can be, where they can be defended, where they should be defended and how they're going to function. And, and that's, I think, a very crucial moment we're at in, in terms of the history of that part of the world. I mean, this is also going on, by the way, in a lot of other areas, particularly China and the South China Sea, parts of Africa and so on. But um, particularly important is right here as the lines surrounding NATO, the, the lines defining the, the old Soviet Union and the current Russia, Russian empire. And, and that's very important that, we, that that gets established. That's what happened. For instance, we had that problem in Kazakhstan. Well, all of a sudden, Russian troops were arriving in Kazakhstan to enforce order. Putin would like nothing better to expand the red line around Russia to envelop and encircle entirely Kazakhstan. He'd love to do that with with um, with Ukraine, but the stakes are obviously much higher there, and it may not just not be worth the effort. It might might not be worth the price. Well, it seems though that in this world today, there's not a lot of ideology at play. It's and it's hard to seek. China is a communist country, even though it's controlled by the Communist Party, given its rampant capitalism, and Putin seem, doesn't seem to have any ideology. But what's clearly going on is there's a struggle between democracy and autocracy, between the rule of law and kleptocracy. So do we have a mixture of that sort of overriding struggle here? I mentioned I referred to as gangster government, and Orban, by the way, was just meeting with Putin a few, what, last week, I think it was. And you've got another gangster down in Turkey who's trying to get into the act as well with Erdogan. But then you've also got this sort of guns of August uh, going back to 1914, don't you? Oh, oh sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and all of these, as I say, all of these people are trying to readjust their, um, uh, their, you know, their, their relationships with each other. Look, uh, Putin also saw there was, a, there was a great picture of them, um, um, the, uh, the president of Iran, sitting in the same position, same uh, spot on the table, this huge long table that uh, Putin was sitting, that uh, Macron was sitting in today. So uh, Putin has been has been rotating a whole lot of people through that chair, um, some very, you know, contiguous with what he believes in, uh, others uh, not. Um, in fact, um, Schultz, the, um, the, the, chance, the new chancellor of, um, of Germany, is, is due to come in there uh, the week after next. If I'm not on the mistaken. 15th, right. Right, right. So... Um, you know, all, all of this is... That um, means that there won't be a war until after the 15th, right? That's, that's right. Well, the, the, the story is that there won't be war until at least after the 20th when the Olympics uh, wind up. But from, it's very interesting, but from the 20th 
until around the 1st of April. That's a very tense period because after the 1st of April or so, it's going to be very difficult to get tanks through the mud that gets churned up in um, in Ukraine when the, the, the snows begin to melt and the, and the, and the, the, um, the, the ground begins to thaw. So that's a very critical moment. Um, that's, we, have, we have maybe three to four weeks, maybe a month, uh, in which we have to get some kind of a stand down and these troops begin to move back towards their, um, towards their barracks. And, and if we can do that, then I think we've gotten past it and then we can really begin to see if uh, diplomacy can, can really work. Well, David Adelman, I thank you so much for joining us here today from Paris. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with David Andelman, who's a contributor to CNN, twice winner of the Deadline Club Award and a chevalier of the, Le- the French Legion of Honor. He's the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles 1919 and the Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy Strategy and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen. He's formerly a correspondent for The New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia, and he runs a Substack blog, Andelman Unleashed, and his latest article at CNN is, Is Macron the West's New Putin Whisperer? We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the meeting today in the White House between President Biden and the new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, in which both sides tried to show a united front that the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia would be cancelled in the event of a Russian attack on Ukraine. We expected something, something better than before. We expected something more. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Berger, who's a professor of international relations at Boston University, who specializes in German politics and international relations, and is the author of War, Guilt, and World Politics After World War II, and Cultures of Anti-Militarism, National Security in Germany and Japan. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Berger. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, was at the White House today. And obviously, there's been a little bit of criticism of him here on Capitol Hill from a number of bipartisan senators saying that the Germans are sort of letting the side down, if you will, not wanting to send arms to help the Ukrainians. And the Baltic states were, were actually very upset with Germany because they wanted to send some artillery that they'd bought from German, Germany that had a condition on it that they couldn't export it without permission, and Germany refused uh, permission. So he's got a coalition there. His foreign minister is the Green Party head, and uh, she's actually in Ukraine today, Monday. So what room to maneuver does Scholz have if the U.S. is leaning on him to get tougher on Ukraine? Well, um, I think that the Germans find themselves in a somewhat difficult position. Um, I have no doubt that in the end, the Germans will, of course, uh, fall into step with the United States and the other allies. Um, It's overwhelmingly in their interest to cooperate with the United States. And both uh, (coughs) Chancellor Scholz and his foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock from the Green Party, um, are uh, making... and putting considerable emphasis on trying to make sure that there's no 
daylight between themselves and the other allies. You know, they don't want to uh, send the wrong signals to the Russians. The unfortunate thing is they may already have done so. And I think the point which um, certainly inside of Germany as well as the United States has been getting the most attention is the fact that the Germans have been very, very reluctant to um, uh, include uh, the North Stream or Nordstrom um, pipeline that they've built from Russia to Germany to transport um, uh, gas. Um, and uh, it's really, uh, you know, Scholz is still not, uh, in fact, I just saw uh, in the German press um, the sort of initial readout on the press conference that he's having with Biden that uh, he didn't avoided mentioning the North uh, Stream project uh, directly. However, um, so, you know, there, and there's some interests which are uh, at play there. The Germans receive a good deal, 25 to 30 percent of their natural gas is coming from Russia. Um, it's a cold winter um, uh, everywhere, and uh, energy prices are going up. So if uh, sanctions were to be imposed, it would, uh, the Germans would be taking a hit. Uh, but uh, at least uh, the Germans are now no longer excluding that issue. And um, I think uh, if we actually have, and Schultz emphasizes that we actually have some kind of military confrontation um, or uh, clashes in the Ukraine, that uh, the there will be very severe economic consequences. So it'll depend on what happens. But that's been uh, that's been sending an unfortunate signal to the Russians and maybe encouraging them to think that the Germans may not be entirely with the team, as it were. Well, there was nothing much came out of the press conference between Biden and Scholz in terms of what's happening now. You know, and early on the program we talked to an analyst in Paris about what Macron and Putin in their marathon meeting were talking about. And that was largely focused on the here and now to try and use dip right. diplomacy to stop things. It seems that what came out of the Biden-Scholz meeting was largely what would happen if Russia were to invade. And Biden defined that by tanks or troops crossing the border with Ukraine. And Biden said there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We will bring it to an end. Then Schultz was asked to commit to that, and he said uh, in English that we will be united, we will act together, and we will take the necessary steps. Right. And then Biden insisted that Germany was a reliable partner, and Schultz insisted that the U.S. and Germany were united. And then Biden right. finished up by saying the notion that Nord Stream 2 would go forward with an invasion by the Russians is just not going to happen. So right. how much did... Biden get Schultz on the record to commit to killing Nord Stream 2 if there's an invasion. Do you think there's any ambiguity left there? There's still ambiguity left. And unfortunately, I think the potential area which would become difficult is defining an invasion. I mean, if we have, you know, Russian armored strike from Belarus towards Kiev, that's pretty much an invasion. If we have um, cyber attacks, that might be a little bit more. We already had a, a sort of brief um, taste of what a Russian cyber attack might look like. But if you have a larger scale cyber attack, would the Germans sign on to it? I'm not sure. Um, we, one thing which, and this is the kind of the particular problem that we have uh, with the Ukraine. Uh, Putin may decide to do something big. Um, most analysts think that this would not be in his interest. But uh, what might be even more troubling is that he does a series of small steps, what they used to call salami tactics, you know, by taking one slice after another, 
um, uh, off of um, the Ukraine through a cyber attack, for instance, by increasing support for the um, uh, the insurrectionists in the eastern part of the country in the Donbas region, um, that he may create a series of crises which will test our will. And in that particular context, uh, it may be that some of our, there will be uh, increased discord between ourselves, between Washington, D.C. and its allies, including and especially in Germany, where um, they may not be as willing to respond forcefully as we might like them to be. So that's something that we do have to be worried about moving forward. The other issue that's also been coming up, especially in the context of Germany and its European neighbors, and you already mentioned uh, the Lithuanians and the Baltic states, is the whole question of supplying weapons uh, to the Ukraine. Um, Germany is the world's fourth largest uh, weapons producer, um, and they sell um, high-quality weapons, including tanks and, uh, and submarines all over the world. Um, but under German law, um, the Germans don't supply weapons to uh, what they call Krisengebiete, that is, uh, conflict zones. They sell them to the Saudis, and they sell them to the Turks, and the Turks have used those weapons in Syria. The Saudis have used them in uh, their war in Yemen, uh, but the Germans are refusing to send weapons uh, to the Ukraine or allowing weapons that have been produced by them to go to the Ukraine. And this is, again, attracting a great deal of criticism. Um, uh, including um, from the Ukraine itself. I just was listening earlier to German television where the Ukrainian um, ambassador was saying, you know, it's desperately important that Germany joins other allies, including the United States, uh, Britain, uh, France, and I believe even Spain who are sending weapons. But again, the Germans are uh, outstanding for their absence on this front. So these are some of the kinds of problems that we are already seeing. If this crisis continues and becomes uh, more intense, I suspect that some of these differences will become more intense. Putin, I think, is very well aware of this. Um, he spent, after all, his formative years, he speaks uh, in, or is a professional in Germany. He was a German counter, uh, he was a KGB agent in Germany, he speaks fluent German. And uh, he was raised in the sort of mindset of the Cold War. And these kinds of tactics are the kind of thing that we may very well see more of in the coming years. So what's the mood in German politics then? I mean, the country's been mostly focused on COVID. How much has it been focused on Ukraine? And how much has it been focused on on this summit and the tensions between the US and Germany over Germany's reluctance to uh, arm the Ukrainians? Well, I mean, I think you you hit the nail right on the head. The Germans have been really uh, overwhelmingly focused on internal uh, issues. Um, I followed the German press press quite closely. Uh, yes, there have been articles and there's been mention made of the Ukrainian issue, but the Germans have just I mean, been obsessed with um, COVID. There's been the Germans have done very well dealing with COVID compared to most other um, advanced industrial countries, including their neighbors in Europe, not to mention the United States. But there's been a sharp uptick, and so the German press has been completely dominated. And it's just in the last few days that we're actually seeing a lot of attention being paid uh, to this issue. And it's sort of like the Germans are waking up. The German public, um, if you take a look at the public opinion polls, I mean, there's you know, a great deal of criticism for um, Russian activities uh, in, uh, in the Ukraine. Uh, but at the same time, for example, on the question of um, supplying weapons to the Ukraine, uh, 71% of the German public uh, says that they shouldn't do that. There's an overwhelming preference for relying upon primarily diplomatic tools. 
uh, for dealing with uh, the crisis. The issue of, um, again, you know, it depends on the poll that you look. You see some support for economic sanctions, but uh, the question is what kind of economic sanctions, and that's um, there's also some hesitancy on that front. So, yes, in principle, the German public, uh, you know, supports uh, the West. Um, there are elements in the German public. Um, there's a lot of people who are called Putin or Russland Frischteher, that is people who understand Russia, who understand Putin, who are more sympathetic to the Russian um, arguments. Um, that so, includes oh, yeah. uh, Gerhard Schroeder, the former chancellor, right? Well, He's on well, the board indeed. of Nord Stream 2. Exactly, and this is actually, again, something that um, is uh, attracting a great deal of criticism inside of Germany. Gerhard Schröder, who was the German chancellor in the uh, late 1990s and early 2000s, who also very famously in the case of the Gulf War, uh, the, when, not the Gulf War, the war in Iraq, um, joined France and Putin in uh, vetoing UN uh, condemnation uh, or approval of military action against Iraq. Um, he's uh, been, since he retired, on the board of um, of, uh, of Nord Stream, the Nord Stream project, and this is something of a public scandal in German political circles. And he's been a strong sort of advocate for a sympathetic position towards Russia. And uh, But there are other figures as well throughout the German political system. And if you were also going to go to the former East Germany, uh, interestingly enough, you find a lot of people who um, share that point of view. So just in the last minute, how could Germany uh, get through the winter if they had to cut off the gas supplies from Gazprom because of a war in Ukraine? Well, um, uh, again, I haven't, I'm not an expert in this area, but um, it will certainly push up gas prices enormously. And I wouldn't be surprised if they would have to um, uh, engage in some degree of rationing of uh, gas supplies. They're looking for alternative sources. I would imagine, um, and I think we spoke before the program briefly, that they would be looking for increased supplies from the Middle East. Um, uh, but uh, this would definitely be a problem for them. And well, thank you for joining us, uh, Thomas Berger. There's a lot more to be said, but um, I enjoyed talking with you as always, Ian, and uh, good to be with you. Well, thank you, Thomas. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Berger, who's a professor of international relations at Boston University, who specializes in German politics and international relations, and is the author of War, Guilt, and World Politics After World War II, and Cultures of Anti-Militarism, National Security in Germany and Japan. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. 
Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America The quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave And this land here of the free When time was back One more light goes on.